Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide the leading online platform for travel experiences and the home of Originals by Get Your Guide, an extraordinary collection of unforgettable travel experiences. Thanks to Get Your Guide, you can now go on the first ever behind-the-scenes tour of the McLaren Technology Centre in Surrey in the UK, home of the McLaren Formula One team, where the iconic cars driven by Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri are designed and built. This Originals by Get Your Guide experience with McLaren runs on a first-come, first-served basis for selected dates throughout the year and is extremely limited. So book your place now at getyourguide.com. They're renowned for dominating Formula One with multiple world champions and the fastest cars on the grid. But Red Bull Racing's path to the top began with a young Austrian talent. I was the first Red Bull Junior driver who made it into Formula One. And uh, since go-karting, uh, I was supported by Red Bull. Financially, we couldn't do it ourselves from, from home. So uh, without Red Bull, I never would have made it anywhere. And thanks to their support, uh, made it all the way to Formula One. Yeah. Christian Klein raced for Red Bull in their first Formula One season. But back then, the team wasn't the winning machine that it would eventually become. You have to be in the right car to show your true potential, of course. And every year is more or less surviving to find that right spot for you. And that's uh, very energy consuming. I lost the motivation, I lost the joy for it. And uh, when you end up like in the back market teams, then it's, uh, you start to lose the fun of it. Hello everyone, it's Tom Clarkson here and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid. This week, I'm catching up with a man who experienced the very beginning of Red Bull's journey in Formula One. Long before the likes of Sebastian Vettel and Max Verstappen graduated from the team's young driver program, their first Formula One prodigy was actually Christian Klein. Having sponsored the Austrian's karting career through to his arrival in Formula One with Jaguar in 2004, Red Bull's faith in Christian continued when they gave him a seat for their debut season in 2005. He and David Coulthard secured a double points finish in the team's first ever race. However, Christian would only get two seasons with the team. He was replaced by his former Jaguar teammate Mark Webber, and in 2007 he had to fight for another Formula One drive elsewhere. Christian's very honest when reflecting on his Formula One adventure and why it didn't last as long as he would have liked. He talks about his greatest strengths and weaknesses, the impact that Red Bull motorsport advisor Helmut Marko and the company's late co-founder Dietrich Mateschitz had on his career, how Coulthard compared to Weber, Red Bull's reputation as a party team, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Christian, it is great to see you again. How are you, first of all? Well, uh, Tom, thank you very much for having me in the show. Uh, I'm very well, thank you. 
I'm enjoying life currently uh, as a commentator, but still uh, racing myself. I have a young child, one and a half uh, years old, that keeps me really busy when I'm at home. So going to the Formula One race is almost like a holiday nowadays. <laughs> well, we're going to come on to your career in a minute, but let's talk first about F1 2023. What do you make of the season so far? Uh, I like it. I think it's uh, it's exciting. Uh, although uh, Red Bull is 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 pretty strong, but uh, that might ch change in the in the later on in the season. But I think the whole pack is definitely closer together. Uh, it's great to see uh, you know a new team with Aston Martin with Fernando Alonso fighting for podiums. Uh, you know, you see the Ferraris uh, up at the front struggling in the races, so you you, you feel for them. Uh, you know, Mercedes starting to get better. So if, if you follow it closely, I think it's very uh, a very dynamic season and, and certainly very interesting. You raced for Red Bull in their first season of Formula One back in 2005 and even Jaguar before that, which was the same team. Have you been surprised that 18 years later they've got this level of dominance or was the appetite and the, uh, and the potential there even back then? I mean, in the beginning, who who could have uh, thought of this? Uh, nobody, not even uh, uh, Helmut, uh, nor uh, Didi Matischitz back then, who started the team, or Christian Horner, you know. It was, uh, you know, to come into Formula One as a, let's say, an underdog, and Red Bull was definitely an underdog, with no history in, in, in Formula One, and, and basically starting from, uh, from scratch, uh, who would have thought that? So, no, I am... Yes, um, now I'm surprised by that. But if you follow the team closely, especially after the first three, four years, they took it a bit more serious, probably. And, uh, you know, uh, they put the right people in the right position. And from then on, you, you, you knew, okay, they really did not just want to be part of Formula One, they're here to win. And who are your standout drivers of 2023 so far? Max, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, he shows it weekend uh, in, weekend out that he's... Uh, he just performs at the at the incredible level with more coolness now, more relaxed, and he's definitely a standout for me. But then also Fernando Alonso. I mean, what 41 years old, 42, 41? It's amazing, huh? What what he can uh, what he can do, how hungry he is. Uh, of course, he has the car for it now. Uh, but those are probably uh, for me the, the the two standout drivers for this season. You're still racing GT3. How has age affected your ability in the car? Just thinking of Fernando. Yeah, it, I think uh, in the end it's quite—it's a mental game, I, I would say. Uh, and if you're still very hungry, you're physically fit. I mean, Fernando, if you if you walk past him, he, he still looks, he doesn't look like 41. He's so fit. Um, I'm a little bit jealous about that. So <laughs> I have to go a bit more to the gym. And if you have that inner hunger in you, I think everything is still is still possible, and and he shows that. Well, let's bring it on to your Formula One career now, um, Christian. You made forty nine starts, split between Jaguar, Red Bull, and Hispania. Best result of fifth. How do you reflect on your time? Obviously, uh, making it to Formula One is such a huge step for every driver. But, you know, once you're in Formula One, it's not done. Then the real uh, work starts. And particularly back then, I think for a young driver, I was 20 years old. I would say it was a little bit more difficult. There was no simulators or that. Uh, of course, there was uh, much more testing, which was uh, probably more fun than sitting in a simulator. 
uh, it was a huge step jumping into Formula One. And then not only talking about driving the car itself, I think you get relatively quickly used to it and learn it. But being in that big environment of such a huge team with, you know, six, seven hundred employees, you have to work your way through who is important for you, who to talk to. And especially coming from a Formula 3 team where there's only 20 people, I think that's the biggest change if you, if you jump into Formula 1. And then, of course, the media attention, all the traveling, that's a lot of things uh, that, you know, people from outside don't, don't really see how, how big that transition is. You say you were only 20 when you stepped up. Were you ready? Uh, no. But I only see that now uh, that I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't ready. But then, you know, if you get the opportunity, I had a really good Formula Three season. Uh, I was uh, second in the European uh, uh, series, won the Marlboro Masters, and then after that, win of the Marlboro Masters, I get the first offers for for a test, for a test drive. The one was with Jordan, one was with uh, with Jaguar, and and I grabbed the opportunity obviously, and, uh, and the test also went pretty well. That train comes only once. If you don't jump on the train, it's uh, it's too late. It might not come again. But having said that, me personally, I feel like I, w I wasn't ready. For me, it would have been better uh, a year or two later with a bit more uh, experience uh, in uh, probably a higher category. But yeah, you, you only get the chance once. Do you think you got cars that were worthy of your talent? And I'm going to put it to you that Japan 2005 summed up your Formula One career for me because you qualified fourth, four tenths ahead of your teammate David Coulthard, but you finished ninth, which in those days was outside the points. Incredibly frustrating. So I'm going to put it to you that you were quick but never had the car that allowed you to show what you could do. Do you agree with that? Um, yes, uh, of course. I mean, there's, there's so many drivers out there right now as well. You know, uh, if, if you're not in the right car, uh, it's hard to show your, your full potential. But on the other hand, you always have your teammate uh, where you can, uh, you know, uh, see where you're at. And the first rule is always you have to beat your, your teammate. But having said that, 2005, that car, actually, it was my second year in Formula One, which helped already. That car suited me actually well. I was very comfortable in that car, especially in qualifying. Probably in race conditions, to squeeze everything out uh, of the car in that one and a half hours, I still wasn't probably at a, at, a, at 100% there. But all in all, that 2005 season was a lot better than 2.6. <laughs> well, it was, but you had better reliability as well. Exactly, exactly. But tell me more about that 2005 season. Why did that car suit you so well? Basically, it was an evolution of the Jaguar car. So I was I was used to that car already from from the 2004 season. Basically, that car was designed by the Jaguar guys. Obviously, Red Bull took over the team, but in the end, it was designed by Jaguar, and it was pretty decent and pretty good. Another difficult topic in 2005 is that I had to share the seat with Tonio Liuzzi uh, for the first third of the season. And uh, having said that, it, not only in races, but also all, in all the testing preseason, we shared the car. So we probably had half of the mileage than, uh, than DC, who was obviously much more uh, experienced than us. So that was another difficulty for us uh, young drivers. But how tough was that to suddenly give up your race seat? Uh, very tough. The good thing was uh, me and Tonio, and still up to date now, we're really good friends. And uh, we knew, you know, we're fighting for that second seat at Red Bull Racing. 
but that never came uh, in between us. Uh, we, we we stayed good friends, and uh, and we knew we had to beat each other in uh, in the car, but that was it. I find it so interesting. Was Helmut Marco trying to create this this hostile environment where you each had to prove yourself one week to the next? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but I think it was wrong. It was definitely wrong. And the good thing, and I'm happy about it. Two, three years back, Helmut admitted that this was a mistake. <laughs> so I, I feel even better now. <laughs> but what actually happened mid-season? Because you then got the ride for, for the second half of the year. So what, why did that happen? Why did Tonio get squeezed out? I don't think it was because of wrestles, uh, because Tonio did also well. Um, I think it was just from the team. It just didn't make sense to have basically three drivers and two cars. It just made everything much more complicated. Then I had obviously a little bit more experience than Tonio back then because I had already a, a year of Formula One under my belts and probably did a little bit better in that season, especially the first uh, third of the season. Uh, I out-qualified DC quite a lot. As I said, I felt quite happy in that car. Unfortunately, the, the race wrestles were not always there because, you know, race speed, it was, we were still a midfield team. And, and to score uh, points was only the top eight drivers who get points was, uh, was sometimes a bit dif- difficult. Final thing about 2-5. You were having to share the car with Tonio. We've touched on that. But then even one of the races, you had to pull out. I'm talking about the US Grand Prix at Indianapolis, where all the Michelin runners pulled in uh, before taking the grid. How tough was that for you as a young driver to just take to the pit lane and not take the start? To be honest, I had no clue what happened there. So we drove to the to the starting grid, and at that moment, I still thought we were racing. And then only then, uh, I think it was Christian, Christian Horner came up to me and said, uh, we're not racing, uh, we're driving back into the pits, all the Michelin runners. And I couldn't believe it. But then really everybody, all the Michelin runners went, went back to the pits, didn't start the race. And it was such an awkward feeling, uh, because we, we drivers, we were not involved in all the discussions that were going on in the morning. It was probably a good thing because we had to focus on the race. If it happens, it happens. If not, not. But yeah, it was such a weird situation, especially afterwards. Uh, uh, we were guided out of the racetrack before even the race ended, uh, just in case you know the fans uh, are really upset. And of course, uh, they were, and they have ever had every right to, uh, to be upset. You weren't involved in any of the political discussions over the weekend? Exactly, no, not at, not at all. Probably DC, who was the older one, <laughs> was involved, but I, I was uh, certainly not involved and went to the grid and had no clue that we're not starting the race. This episode is brought to you by Get Your Guide, the leading online platform for travel experiences and the home of Originals by Get Your Guide, an extraordinary collection of unforgettable travel experiences. The latest edition is truly one for the books, the kind of experience you'll be talking about for years to come. Thanks to Get Your Guide, you can now go on the first ever behind-the-scenes tour of the McLaren Technology Centre in Surrey in the UK, home of the McLaren Formula One team, where the iconic cars driven by Lando Norris and Oscar Piastri are designed and built. It's an absolutely incredible space and Get Your Guide is the only place where you can book these extremely special tours. You'll get an up-close look at the legendary McLarens that took Senna, Prost, Lauda, Hamilton, Hakkinen and many more to victory. What's more, you'll step onto the manufacturing floor, which is usually off-limits, for a close-up look at the production line for McLarens road cars. 
You'll even have access to Mission Control, one of the most exclusive rooms in motorsport, where McLaren engineers sit during each race to support the drivers and team at the racetrack. Plus, you'll see the trophy cabinet filled with hundreds of pieces of silverware won by McLaren's race winners and world champions. This tour of the McLaren Technology Centre is only available at Get Your Guide and is just one of the amazing experiences in the Originals by Get Your Guide collection. Whether you're into sports, culture, nature or adventure, you'll find a ton of exciting things to do in the UK, the US and beyond. This Originals by Get Your Guide experience with McLaren runs on a first-come, first-served basis for selected dates throughout the year and is extremely limited. So book your place now at getyourguide.com. So 2-6 the following year, Red Bull swapped to Ferrari power. How different was that engine? Uh, obviously, 2006 uh, uh, was the V8 engines, first year of the V8 engines. You know, probably a little bit less power, but you didn't feel it uh, that much, to be honest. But it was a complete uh, new car. It was the first time that it was a, a Red Bull-designed car, basically. Then we went to Ferrari engines. And I remember the first test in, in uh, Silverstone, uh, the first shakedown we did was in January. It was eight degrees. It was really cold. And we couldn't do more than three laps. The car was overheating. So something went, went wrong in the, in the design and uh, designing the, the cooling, what's necessary for, for that Ferrari engines. And basically, we did the first shakedown or test day. The car looked like a, a Swiss cheese, like holes in all the bodyworks just to get some air out to do at least some running. So that was already the start of that difficult season where we had a lot of DNFs, a lot of problems with the car. It was uh, certainly not an enjoyable season for, for all of the team. That was on track. But at the time, Red Bull was known as the party team. The energy station uh, was a hive of nighttime activity, wasn't it? How hard was it for a young driver to keep focused on the day job? Uh, it was certainly not ideal uh, looking back at it um, because you could get distracted very easily, to be honest. And uh, me and Antonio, we were quite happy to be distracted at some points as well. <laughs> um, but just thinking of, of a professional point of view as a young driver who wants to achieve something, it was not the right approach, definitely. But also the team changed that. Uh, you know, after two, three years, uh, it was clear, okay, we come into Formula One. That was the intention of Red Bull. We want to open up like the paddock. Uh, you know, back then it was, uh, you couldn't go in other, uh, in other motorhomes. It was just the teams and some media in there. And the Red Bull Energy Station welcomed everybody who was in the paddock. Uh, so, so the approach of Red Bull was, uh, was, uh, was totally different and opened up and it was much more friendly in a way. And obviously did all the parties, of course, and everybody in the paddock enjoyed that. And we had a great time. <laughs> everybody had a great time, I, I, I know. And, and the marketing guys at Red Bull, they enjoyed, they could plan whatever they wanted. Everything was possible. But in the end, you know, you have a, a very expensive Formula One team and uh, it's, it's about success and the successes on the racetrack or not uh, beside the racetrack. Were you aware even then that, that that philosophy had to change if the team was going to become a serial winner? 
Um, yes, I think uh, that that was that was quite clear. Yeah, I mean, eighty percent of the team, uh, all the engineers, all the mechanics who worked uh, day and night, they didn't get distracted too much about it. it I mean, in the end, everybody who works in mo- most of the people who work in motorsport and especially Formula One, they work uh, for it with passion. They they work twenty four seven if needed. And uh, the most important thing is uh, is the lap time and the performance on track. Of course, if there's spare time, there's a, n- a good party, you go there. But that's that's even 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 now, you know, if you want to go for a beer at, uh, after the end of a hard day, you can still do that. Now, let's talk about your teammates. First of all, David Coulthard. What sort of a teammate was he? Obviously, David was uh, was very experienced coming from McLaren. I was looking up to him. I knew him uh, since since I'm uh, uh, since I was a young kid. So it was uh, almost kind of an idol uh, to me. And then to race beside him, uh, it was just uh, I mean I could learn so much from him, and not just uh, in in uh, in a, you know driving perspective. He was very good in working with the team. You know, getting the right people together on his car on his side so what you have to learn as a driver as well the job is not just driving the car it's also you have to be a little bit of uh, political and 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 getting the right people on board so so you get the most out of of, of the team and this is what i learned from from david and in in, in my eyes he was uh, one of the best in that very smart very smart yes and quick. which is important too and quick of course yeah i still remember in in monaco it was mind-blowing to me how, how quick he was. I mean, I couldn't do what he did. Where was he finding the time? He drove uh, uh, very precise, very precise, obviously. And I re- still remember now in, in all the low-speed corners, uh, and low-speed corners are quite technical. Also, for example, in Jerez, the, 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 the slow chicane, he always took like two, three tenths out of me. I said, it's just a chicane. How is he doing that? So... It's great for a young driver to to learn, you know, and 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 in the end copy what he does, and uh, and and the same was in Monaco, like all around the low speed stuff. The way he carried in the speed, feed it in the throttle, was just so gentle and and precise that he he made the time with that. Yeah, and of course, Mark Webber had been your teammate in two thousand and four at Jaguar. Who was quicker, Webber or Coulthard? I would say Mark. Mark definitely on one lap. Uh, Mark was uh, very, very strong in qualifying. Yeah, he was similar to Fernando Alonso. He was so hungry and, uh, you know, full attention, like full attention on, on, on motorsport, no distractions, no not drinking left and right. I remember we had a training camp in Langkawi on that island in Malaysia. And he told me he was never in a club. I said, what, you were never in a club? You're much older than me. No, and he's also not drinking alcohol. Okay, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and then I realized, okay, now I'm in Formula One. These guys are fully focused on it. And and Mark was a perfect teammate uh, in a first year of Formula One because he's a true sportsmanship man and uh, no political games. Very easy, very open. It was uh, was a you know an easy an easy step into Formula One uh, having him as a teammate. And, and did he help you? Did he share data? If you had a question in your first year, you were twenty one. Yeah, he would help until Bahrain when I was quicker than him. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the world of Formula One, Christian Kling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, that, we haven't actually talked about that two thousand and four season yet. I mean, you, you come in. After one year of Formula 3, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think F3 was meant to have been a two-year program for you. And then you win the, the Zandvoort Masters and um, 
suddenly those tests come and, and the, obviously Jaguar make you the offer. You can't decline it because you've got to jump on the train, as you said earlier. But were you concerned that there had been a conveyor belt of drivers going through that second Jaguar seat in the early 2000s? Um, Pedro de la Rosa, Justin Wilson, Antonio Pizzonia, Luciano Berti, they'd all sort of come and gone. Were you aware that you were stepping into quite a quite a difficult situation? No, not at all. Not at all. And again, if if you if that door opens, you have to grab it. You know, you have to take the chance in the end. Having said that, it was it was actually a very nice environment at at, at Jaguar back then. I, I quite enjoyed it. Obviously the car was not as we uh, hoped for and it was like a midfield team although Mark had some really good qualifying uh, uh, results but then in the end you know I'm, I was 20 years old I was so concentrated on my own job there was so many new impressions not just driving the cars so many new racetracks first time flying to Australia first time in Malaysia I mean I never traveled um, uh, outside of Europe there was so much media attention there's such a big team that you work in I mean, your head is full. And uh, the best thing is when you sit in the car, close the visor, then you feel kind of comfortable. The rest is all, everything is unknown in the first year. I remember Mark Gillen, um, one of the senior engineers there, telling me that he was incredibly impressed with how quickly you got up to speed before the season. Yes. Obviously, there was a lot of testing, a lot of winter testing. And I remember I had... I had no spin, all winter testing, and it was probably, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 test days, not one spin. And Mark Gillen came to me, why you never spin? Are you not driving at the limit? <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's traction control and everything. It's pretty easy, I said. <laughs> but of course, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't probably at, at, uh, at 100%. But for me, it was, was important to get mileage. And then obviously going above 100%, uh, you know, you can do that in qualifying or races. That's an interesting point you make about traction control. That was sort of peak driver aids, wasn't it? And you come from a very basic Formula 3 car. How difficult was it to get your head around all of the the tools that you had at your disposal? Yeah, it's it's all the tools that you had. And to make them work for you. Uh, that was more difficult. Using a traction control, you go on full throttle and the traction control does the job. But setting it up to your liking was the difficult thing. And obviously having no experience in Formula 1 made that, made that more difficult. So you had a lot of tools that helped you, but you had to use them as well to your advantage. And that takes also experience and some time until you, you, you nailed it. Let's talk about traction control. How counterintuitive is it? I mean, are you literally flooring the throttle not even feeding it in yeah if it's set it up if it's set up properly yeah and traction control you know you had uh you had also different traction control setting for for different parts of the corners and uh i remember there was like three rotary switches just for for traction control and uh, and changing it from corners to corners uh that was sometimes a bit too much for me but again it was to use all that tools to your advantage was also difficult. So it was important to be clever. You know, it's not the engineers didn't set up everything for you. You you had to do it as a driver in, inside the car, and uh, and that made also you know the difference between one of the other drivers. I remember Mark Gillen again saying that you were a very smart driver. In hindsight, what was your greatest strength? I didn't do many mistakes to be honest. Uh, I had a good overview 
in the races, uh, the cars around me and so on. So I wasn't involved in too many crashes. I think I was quite good when I felt comfortable uh, on a qualifying lap. My downside prob was probably in those days to squeeze everything out of the car in, in uh, race conditions. And back then there was not you know, looking after the tires. It was flat out for one and a half hours. It was qualifying for one and a half hours. Tough physically as well. Very tough physically. And, and, and I'm again, looking at you now, Christian. You are just a ball of muscle. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But, yeah. it, uh, but I mean, of all the people I know, <laughs> <laughs> but of all the people I know who surely didn't have a problem physically, it's you. Mm, no, uh, I mean, definitely the, the first half of the season at, at Jaguar in 2004, I wasn't able physically to push through the whole entire race. And, and Mark Weber, again, he was the best benchmark. He was physically so fit, and I learned, again, a lot from him. And uh, my physio back then, Nick Harris, who, who, you know, how fit you have to be in Formula One, actually. And, and Mark was, again, a great benchmark there, but it took me really a while until I was able to physically fight through a whole race. And I remember the first winter I spent uh, all winter in, in, in England, in London, so much uh, physical training. But then driving the car is, again, sometimes something else, especially the neck muscles is hard to train and stuff like this. So, yeah, it was, it was def definitely tough. So, end of 2004, you've just had your first season in Formula One. I'm guessing a lot of your mates are at university. You're still very young. And Jaguar are pulling out of Formula One. I mean, what were you thinking at that time? Did you think my Formula One career is over before it's almost started? Or were you aware very early on that Red Bull were going to buy? No, no, no. I mean, we did the last race in Brazil and it was still not clear uh, what's going to happen with the team. I knew that there was an intention probably that Red Bull might, might buy it, but Brazil, last race, I mean, me and Mark, we crashed into each other as well at, at the last race. That wasn't uh, ideal, but uh, I, I certainly didn't know what the future brings. And it was only, I think, in November or so that, uh, that Red Bull said, okay, we, we're taking over the team. But then it was still not clear if I'm staying there or not. So it was a, yes, it was a, a difficult uh, situation. But uh, it proved later on that this is Formula One and you, you can never be sure what happens the next year. So you had an association with Red Bull in, in your junior career, but it predated the official Red Bull Young Driver program. So how did it come about, given that there wasn't a Young Driver program? Basically, I was the first Red Bull Junior driver who made it into Formula One and the Red Bull Junior program, but it was not the Red Bull Red Bull Junior program like it is now. It was, we support some Austrian drivers and uh, support them in, in, in motorsport. And the first three drivers was uh, Patrick Friesacher, uh, Bernhard Auinger. He, he's now running uh, uh, the circuit at the Red Bull ring. I think he made it until Formula 3000 uh, and myself. And uh, we were like the four musketeers, musketeers, how you call it, yeah, from from uh, from Red Bull, and uh, yeah. So I, I was always since go karting, uh, I was supported by by Red Bull. Uh, financially, we couldn't do it ourselves from home, so uh, without Red Bull, I never would have made it anywhere. Uh, and thanks to their support, uh, made it all the way to to Formula One. Yeah. Was this Helmut Marco? Because he he was running his own 
Formula 3000 team at the time, wasn't he? Yes. So Were um, you getting those early morning phone calls from yeah, 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 yeah. Christian, how did it go yet? The yeah, weekend? yeah, I got them as well. And uh, But in, initially, in the beginning, it was uh, Thomas Ubral who was responsible for, let's say, yeah, the Red Bull Junior program in the end, uh, when, it, when it started. Then later on, obviously, with uh, Helmut's expertise of motorsport, he took over that program. And yes, I did get uh, that early morning calls as well. And uh, they were horrible, I have to say. <laughs> now I understand it. I get a getting a bit older. I get up earlier as well in the morning. Now I get it. But uh, then uh, back then, uh, and I know from other junior drivers, it was certainly not enjoyable getting these early calls. <laughs> and, and did you have any association with Dietrich Mateschitz back then? Yes, uh, basically my my first Red Bull helmet and uh, and support. The first helmet I got handed over from from Didi Mateschitz himself, and uh, my my contact was always either Thomas Ubral or Didi, and also uh, my first move into Jaguar. So I got when, when I when I got that Jaguar seat, there was also some sponsorship from uh, Red Bull going to Jaguar, but that was also everything was dealt with with Didi directly. Tell us what sort of a man he was. Didi was amazing. I think. Uh, he helped so many athletes, and not just in motorsports, like uh, in all different kind of uh, areas in, 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 in sports. And he was just such a happy, friendly man always, and, and he was happy to support with not much return. I can only say the, say, say the best about him. And also, you could call him anytime. Anytime you want, he will pick up the phone and have time for you. But Chris, you, a teenager in the junior formulas of motor racing could get on the phone to the big man and he would pick he'd pick up yes and i was just you know a little little stone that he supported uh, in his big big company i mean back then when when i the first time i went to repul in fuschel i think there were like 35 people working there it was really small i mean it in the last you know 20 25 years it got to such a big company but back then it was like a family. You knew more or less everybody, and uh, and it was uh, was different back then, yeah. And do you think in the world post Didi Mateschitz, who very sadly passed away last year, do you think the company's association with motorsport and Formula One is going to change going forward? Uh, I hope not, and I don't think so. It's it's more. I, I think it's kind of in in the DNA of Red Bull. In the meantime, I mean, it's still probably one of the best marketing tools you can get and Red Bull in the end is a is a marketing company and uh, I mean Red Bull Racing is doing so well I can't see that's that's changing and I think uh, in the in the philosophy in the DNA of Red Bull motorsport will always be involved I'm, I'm pretty sure about that one of the things I love about Red Bull is how they look after their athletes even when they've retired I mean the three guys you mentioned who were the first drivers you're all still associated with red bull in different ways you working for service tv and the other guys freesacker and owing both involved at the red bull ring and doing things and even scott speed i saw him at the miami grand prix earlier this year he is still involved with red bull all these years later even though it didn't end particularly well in formula one for him so i love that loyalty from red bull it's amazing yeah it's amazing and that's all down to Dietrich Mateschitz and how he shaped his company. His uh, the people who worked there, 
they're all very much the same than he liked them to be or he was kind of the role model and and you can travel around the world and and talk to different people who work for Red Bull they're more or less all the same they all have the same mentality and very very loyal uh, that's that's amazing yeah that's i think uh, very rare uh, nowadays in this world yeah? so <laughs> here we are talking about the loyalty but i'm now going to bring it on to the end of 2006 when um, <laughs> of course actually it came to a an end in formula 1 um look what happened there because i felt you were getting your feet under the table they just employed Adrian Newey. The team was on the up. Must have been, well, must have been a frustrating time for you. Uh, yes, it was a very frustrating time, a very uh, frustrating year as well. And it came to an end in Monza. Basically, uh, Red Bull or uh, Helmut Marko offered me a drive for 2007 in Indy cars and said, uh, we don't extend your contract in Formula One but we offer you a drive in IndyCar uh, with Kalkofen Racing back then. And I said, uh, no, I would like to stay in Formula One. I feel like I have uh, unfinished business here. And, and I said no to that offer. And uh, probably the mistake I did back then, I did that uh, publicly on, on the Austrian television. I said no to that offer. And that uh, didn't come down uh, very well with Helmut. And then obviously after the race in Monza, I said, okay, Christian, we finish it now. <laughs> because <laughs> Understandable. Of, because of that comment? Because of the comment that I did uh, uh, publicly in, in, in TV. But there was so much going on, uh, you know, behind doors that I was really, really frustrated with the situation and the, the way, you know, it brought up to me. It wasn't, uh, wasn't very nice. So my reaction was, was probably wrong. But even even without that reaction, I didn't want to go to to IndyCars, and uh, also went there, had a look at the team Kalkofen Racing. It would have been their first year. I would have been probably at the at the end of the field, and then probably a year after, you know, it would have been finished with Red Bull Racing. And anyway, I felt I had unfinished business in Formula One. I definitely wanted to stay in F1, even if that meant uh, if I have to break up with uh, with Red Bull, who made everything possible for me to, to get into F1. Do you regret that decision now? No. No, to be honest, because I don't think I would have had a, a successful career in IndyCars in America. I don't think that would Why have not? been my type of racing. I don't like oval racing, not even back then. Have you then. been on an oval? No. But you can ask a lot of drivers here, and, and not many uh, like to go on a, on an oval. And that's probably because you know we, we grew up differently in Europe. Uh, drivers from America they, they see it probably different. Probably I have to ask uh, Fernando how it is to drive an oval. But anyway, nevertheless, I, I wanted to stay in F1, and uh, I think uh, I would still do it the same again. Uh, after that, I had a fantastic time at uh, at Honda the year after being a test and reserve driver. Obviously, once you're in that role as a test and reserve driver, it's very hard to get back. Stayed then two years with, uh, with BMW as test and reserve driver and then had a couple of races in Hispania racing. But yes, I would do it again because I wanted to stay in F1. Let's talk about Honda and BMW Sauber. Um, how did those two teams compare? Of course, for, for people listening who aren't aware, you know, newer fans to Formula One, Honda is now Mercedes. 
So it was the sort of embryonic stages of that world championship winning team. Yes. Uh, and when I was t- that's, um, now at Mercedes, most of the people are the same than back then uh, at, the, at the Honda days. And Brackley was a huge facility. I was impressed how big it was. Honda had a really good car the year, the year before 2006. Uh, and I was testing that car in winter and I was, it was mind blowing fast. Uh, unfortunately, the 2007 car, the green earth car wasn't that quick. It was a really difficult season for Jensen and for Rubens. But again, changing the team, because before I was three, three years in Milton Keynes, same team. It was Jaguar, but then Red Bull, it was, but it was Milton Keynes, same team. And you just learned so much with the, the way the people work there, uh, the way Jensen works, the way Rubens works. I think it helped me to grow as a driver. And back then, there was also still the testing. So I did a lot, a lot of testing as well. So I think it was a good, it was a good move. We're talking in Canada, and I must tell you that a lot of the Mercedes guys were on my flight here. And Andrew Shovlin, who is their sort of, you know, chief engineer at the racetrack, I said, oh, I'm, I'm chatting to, to Christian this weekend. He said, oh, he was quick. There you go. <laughs> Good. <laughs> he yeah. got the seal of approval. He said he was quick. They were really yeah, I think impressed he was by uh, Jensen's race engineer back yeah. then, yeah. Uh-huh. How close did you get to racing for Honda? No, I was not very close. Because there's one race in particular. You Uh, did did FP2 at Silverstone, the British Grand Prix. Jensen sat out that session. Back problem. How hopeful were you? Did you think you were going to go and drive in Jensen's home race? I I was, uh, well, obviously it was Jensen's home race. Uh, 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 Of of course, uh, uh, you shouldn't miss that race. but then, you know, uh, I'm a Formula One driver. I want to grab my opportunity. Anyway, I was there. I was the third driver. I was ready. I was jumping into the car. Uh, I did a lot of testing, so I was absolutely ready even to do that race. But it was just, you know, a smaller problem for Jensen. He had a back problem. He went to London, I think, to, to check it all up. He was back on Saturday and did the rest of the weekend. Damn it. But in that one FP2 session, you were only three-tenths of a second slower than Rubin. So, you, as you say, straight up to speed. Yes, because the good thing is back then there was a lot of testing. So you really said a lot in these in this cars. And, uh, and yeah, if you get the opportunity, you were, you were ready and I was certainly. So you go to Sauber, BMW Sauber, the following year, 2008. Um, it's an incredible season for them. And actually, it's funny, we're chatting in Canada because it was where Robert Kubica won his one and only Grand Prix. He was leading the world championship. I mean, I certainly feel that they should have pushed on and gone for the championship that year. Was that the feeling you were getting inside the team as well? That's certainly that Robert thinks, thinks that way. And, and, uh, and a lot of the people probably inside the team as well. And I think if you have that opportunity... It's so close in front of you, you have to push through. I think they should have done that, yes. But then 2009, there was quite a big regulation change, I think, with curse coming in. And, and uh, in Munich, they concentrated quite a lot on that already. So, yes, probably it would have been better to concentrate on that world championship fight. Was the 2008 Sauber a much better car than the 2007 Honda? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Uh, that car was... Uh, very good, actually, yeah. And again, I did a lot of testing uh, in, in, in those cars and it was really mind-blowing fast, yes. And especially Robert, he mastered that car. He was so quick, yeah. You raced Robert a lot in karting and you, you knew him incredibly well. Just how good was Robert Kubica? 
for me, he would have been a future world champion if he if he went to the right team. With his accidents, it it all stopped that hopes. But he was definitely that good to win a, to win a, a F1 championship, and he would have uh, without that uh, unfortunately accident that he had, and uh, you know, obviously being in the right team at the right time. Tell us about your contract negotiations with Mario Tyson, uh, the boss of BMW, because he let you go racing and you did Le Mans. You, you touched on it earlier. You finished third. How much did you enjoy the sports cars? A lot. I uh, enjoyed sports car a lot and it was a kind of an eye-opener after being like five years in F1. You know, you, you don't see left and right. You think F1 is everything. And... Uh, Le Mans was amazing. I mean, it was proper factory teams. Audi, I was at Peugeot. It was a huge fight. They were operating almost like F1 teams, but in a relaxed atmosphere at the racetrack. It wasn't that strict and it wasn't that, you know, uh, that, that tough uh, in a way, like like strict, you know, long days like, like you have in Formula 1. It was open paddocks where, where, fans are, uh, where fans were in. It was down to the basics in motorsport that you grew up and enjoyed that a lot. And the racing at Le Mans, is, uh, every, every driver would say that it's just amazing. Uh, Antonio Giovinazzi would say that now, uh, <laughs> of course, uh, having won uh, Le Mans. But also if you spoke, speak to, to Nico Hülkenberg, who did it uh, while his uh, Formula One career, it's just uh, such a great race. Are we going to see you back at Le Mans? I think so. I definitely would have uh, loved to do that uh, at least one more time, yeah. But in Formula One, 2008-2009 with BMW Sauber, BMW then pull out of Formula One at the end of 2009. You must have been thinking, oh no, not again, <laughs> after yes, what had yeah, happened yeah. With, exactly, with Jaguar. Exactly, yeah. um, had BMW continued in F1, do you reckon you could have got a race seat with them? Uh, yes, I had actually. For 2010, I had a, had a contract for a race seat. So that never happened, of course, because they pulled out in, what was it, August, summer break of, uh, of 2009. But then there was another option because uh, uh, Felipe Massa had that accident in, uh, in Budapest and he couldn't do the rest of the season. And uh, Robert Kubica was already in Maranello doing, uh, doing seat fits. And then Peter, Sa- I, was doing ju- I was just doing a straight line test in, in Italy for, for BMW Sauber. And then Peter Sauber called me, not Mario, Peter Sauber. He t- kind of took over the team already. Uh, practice some starts, Christian. You might do Monza. I said, well, what I might do Monza? Yeah, we, we release uh, Robert. He's going to Ferrari. And uh, you will continue the rest of the season. I said, great, I'm doing starts now. <laughs> But then, unfortunately, that didn't happen because uh, something went wrong. Uh, yeah, with Robert going to Ferrari. But you know, that's that's always so close. You it's in front of your nose, and but, then but, you can't get it. But Christian, you were on Peter Sauber's radar. He then takes control of the team again when BMW pull out. So I imagine the race seat discussions continue. Absolutely, and they were. Unfortunately, I didn't have any money to bring. And, and it was a different story back then, you know. They had a huge complex. BMW Sauber uh, extended the, 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 the factory uh, enormously in Hinville. And uh, obviously the BMW money was gone. So they had to run the team, a huge infrastructure. infrastructure. So, you know, if you talk to Sauber, those, those years after BMW were very, very tricky for them. You end up going to Hispania for 2010. Um, after all the manufacturer teams, it must have been a very different environment. Yes, it was. Um, 
it was very late that Colin Collis called me and asked me if I could join the team as a, let's say, benchmark uh, there uh, to do some Friday tests. And it was only for Friday tests and some testing, just to be a bit of a benchmark there. I said, okay, I do it because I have nothing else in my pocket. I was still with Peugeot uh, also at 2010, so I had the sports car program, but nothing in F1. So I did a couple of uh, yeah Friday tests there, but yes, it was a very small team. And you have to say, Colin did a very good job actually to hold that team together and to survive, to bring it from one race to the other. But uh, yeah, it was almost like back to Formula 3 days. Well, and you end up doing a few races late in the year. I mean, I, I'm imagining you're spending as much time looking backwards as forwards, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the car was like, I don't know, four or five seconds slower a lap. The car drove quite well, actually. It was just slow. And it was wo more watching the mirrors than, than anything else. So, uh, yeah, not quite enjoyable. So then F1 becomes a thing of the past. At the end of 2010, do you think... What's going through your mind? Do you do you think I've I've got to try and get back in or no? No, 2010. It was clear to me that's that's it. That's the, the end of my F1 career. Uh, being in a in a such a backmarker team was wasn't really my intention, and I lost the motivation. I lost the the joy uh, for it, and uh, I said, okay, that's it. With Formula One, and then uh, went uh, went to sports car racing. Uh, went to Aston Martin, did the LMP1 program in 2011 for them and focused more on other categories in, in motorsports. But Christian, as a guy who's only in his 20s still, how hard is it to accept that F1 is over? Particularly, and I'm going to go back to the point I made right at the start, when you were clearly quick but had never had the car deserving of your talent. Yeah, but if you if you're a driver, you understand that very well. If you if you you have to be in the right car to show your true potential, of course. Yeah, um, and if that's not the case, uh, you 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 cannot show it. And every year is more or less surviving to find that right spot for you. If you're like out of of, of the loop a little bit, and that's that's uh, very you know uh, energy consuming. And uh, when you end up like in the teams, like in the backmarker teams, then it's uh, you start to lose the, the fun of it. But the good thing about motorsport is, and another uh, you know uh, sports you don't have, it there's so much more that you can race with. And I was always open-minded to racing other categories, and you know going out there doing sports car. Uh, I did uh, V8 supercars in Australia. I mean, it's amazing. I do Bathurst. nowadays. Bathurst I did, yeah. What was that like? Awesome. Probably one of the best racetracks I ever raced in, especially in a V8 supercar uh, car. It just really suits this uh, this circuit. And you also see, you know, out of this uh, Formula One paddock, this different categories they're super talented driver, drivers in Australia it's not just uh, like uh, I was an F1 driver I go there and win everything no it's completely the opposite they're really good in what they're doing at and that's in sports car that's in GT3 racing so if, if you like that challenge and that adrenaline rush of uh, racing other cars competing uh, you know having wheel to wheel fights there's so much more out there that gives you the fun and joy what's the best track Le Mans or Bathurst I would say Bathurst. Bathurst is uh, probably more challenging with all the going up and down. There's walls. Uh, it's 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 amazing. 
you need to talk to Valtteri Bottas about this. He really wants to do Bathurst. Good. Yeah, he should. He should. I think he's got a very similar attitude to you because he do, he loves a bit of rallying. He he was at the Adelaide 500 and drove a supercar. That's funny because there's some drivers for them it's only Formula One, and when Formula One is over, they retire and do. They're not interested in other motorsports. And then there's other drivers, and I would also say Max Verstappen after F1, he's definitely racing something else because he just loves racing. And you're keeping in touch with Formula One through the TV work. Do you enjoy it? Yes, I, I do enjoy it. Um, obviously, always, uh, even after my career, I always followed F1. Uh, I'm, of course, I raced in it, but I'm, at the end, I'm also a big fan of F1. Uh, and now working as, uh, with, uh, with Servus TV in F1 is, is a lot of fun. We have a really good crew. Uh, we do half of the races, 12 of the races, which is also not so bad. So it gives me some time and room to race myself still. So really good. And you're still skiing and doing all the fun things that Austrians do. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Still skiing, a lot of road cycling when the summer is here. And yeah, winter, of course, skiing or some ice hockey as well. Ice hockey as well. So here in Canada, you got to go to the, uh, the Montreal. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but you look, now I'm a journalist. I don't have much time for those things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christian, it's been so much fun to catch up. Thank you so much for your time. And, and what a phenomenal career you've had. It's been brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you very much for being on the show, Tom. Christian is such an interesting and articulate guy, and let's not forget that he's speaking in a second language. He's someone who's passionate about Formula One and really understands the sport. He must be a brilliant pundit on Austrian television. I loved his assessment of his own career and what he learned from the other drivers he raced with, and his own journey with Red Bull and how he, as a teenager, had a direct line to Diddy Mataschitz tells you everything you need to know about how highly rated Christian was within Red Bull. Christian, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up, and I'll see you at a race again soon. So what did you make of our conversation? What stood out? Do you think Christian deserved a better car in Formula One? And what do you remember of his years with Red Bull? Let me know through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in after last week's show with Lando Norris. He told us that he'd love to score a podium at home, and he only went and delivered exactly that at Silverstone last weekend. Let's start with this from Chris. It was a great listen, Tom. I love how grounded Lando is. Hopefully things only go up from here for McLaren. Well, Silverstone was a great start, Chris. And thanks for your note. And what about this from Tibbetts1551? Lando has really grown into a true British gentleman. Gear class, a modern-day Sterling Moss. I hadn't thought of him as being a modern Sterling. What a compliment to Lando. And next, what about this from Mikey Watkins? Oh man, I am a huge Lando fan, says Mikey. The guy is so genuine and so wise for his age, super talented and a true ambassador for the sport. Big love for this episode. Thanks, Tom and Lando. Well, thank you for getting in touch, Mikey, and I'm glad you enjoyed the episode. We'll end these messages with this one from Curious Newcracker. As a grandmother of grandsons near Lando's age... I'm proud of him too. Well, that's a lovely message, curious newcracker. That's the thing. Lando's appeal is multi-generational. And you might also like to know that he had his parents and grandparents at Silverstone with him this year. 
So thanks to everyone who wrote in. We love reading what you have to say about the episodes. You're a very wise bunch. And please do get in touch about Christy and Clean in time for next week's show. But that's almost it from us. Before I go, don't forget that F1 Nation's review of the British Grand Prix is out now. Natalie Pinkham and I, along with French journo Jeremy Sartis, had fun catching up with lots of people after the race. And why not check out the latest episode of Formula Y, which answers your questions about pit stops, simulators, driver fitness, and much more. I'll speak to you again next week when I'll be joined by another great guest from the world of Formula One. Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.